Again, good morning and uh, welcome. I want to encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 6 and follow along either on our app or in our bulletin, taking some notes today as we begin a new series that we're calling Intersection. I don't know how many of you have been there, but you've probably, probably on some level have been in this moment. It's that pull you feel in your gut or in your mind or that awkward moment when you've met somebody or you're talking to somebody in an airport or you're at a restaurant or somebody that you're just... Uh, have gotten to know, and they ask you that question, are you a Christian? Or, you go to church? If you haven't been there, you will be at some point. A couple weeks ago, that happened to me. I was in my favorite office space, uh, Brown Bag Roasters, Thursday mornings, my favorite place to work every week, and a couple was traveling across the country uh, from California up back to home where they lived in, in, in Canada. And they had stayed the night in Amarillo, and on the map they had seen this town called Canadian. And they just had to know what Canadian was about, being Canadians themselves. So they showed up to the coffee shop downtown, and then we got to talking, a little bit of small talk, and I saw it coming. I saw that question coming. So what brings you to the small town of Canadian? I thought, oh no, here we go. The awkward question when I tell somebody the answer and what I actually do for a living. So I said, well, I'm a CEO of a small company. Perhaps you've heard of it, Amazon.com. <laughs> no, I said, I'm a, I'm a preacher here in town. And there it was, boom, as quick as it could be. The tense neck, the pursing of the lips, the side eye looking at each other saying, we better get out of here before this guy starts a Bible study. It was awkward. It was weird. I was in this great conversation and boom, they switched to talking to April Cook because she was the barista of the day. They were done with me. But I don't know if you've been there. If you've never been there, you will eventually be there. And the reason you will be there is that just like Shannon was saying, and we didn't work on this together, we are continually living more and more into what's called a post-Christian culture. Now, there's no argument for this. You can't debate this. It is a fact that we live in a world that is, has less and less of an understanding of a basis of what it means to be a Christian. So back in the 70s, there was a missionary couple from England. They were from London. Leslie and Nancy Newbigin was their name. Great writer. If you ever want to read Leslie Newbigin stuff, he is awesome. But him and his wife spent 35 years up into the 70s and 80s in India, very rarely ever going back to their home base of London, to their home church. And over 35 years, they spent time reaching people whose background was Muslim and Hindu and whose background was Buddhist. But after 35 years, at the age of 65, they retired and they moved back to London. And Newbigin, in one of his books on the mission of the church, writes about this strange phenomenon he felt. Because when he came back home to London, he hardly recognized it. Not because of what had changed architecturally or what had changed maybe technologically or what had changed just with his surrounding environment. He hardly recognized it because he left a place where people were centered in faith and he came back 
to a place he could hardly even understand. He taught at a local college that was Christian at one point, and most of his students as freshmen in the 70s and 80s didn't even know what the word gospel meant. He began to notice as he walked to work in London that most of the buildings that were houses of worship were boarded up or closed altogether. He writes famously about that, this line. He says, it was as if we left a Christian home with Christian parents to come back years later and discover that my whole family had become pagan. It was that strange of an experience. Now we, while Europe has been in this moment for decades, we have been in this for the past 60 years. A slow shift from a Christ-centered culture into a post-Christian world. And I want to mention as we get started, three shifts that have happened in our world that mark that shift. Number one, the American culture has shifted from Christianity being in a majority to a minority. This happened just in the last couple of years, is that now less than 50% of Americans now attend church regularly, all right? It's actually a lot less than that in most places. In Canadian, I don't know what it is. In Perryton, I don't know what it is. In Wheeler, I bet it's close. In Canadian, the number is around 25 to 30% of regular church attenders. Some of you that are hearing my voice that consider yourself regular church attenders, you're not. (laughs) Online doesn't count. Um, It is not regular church attendance. But we are now in a minority. Second one is Christianity has moved from a center place in this world to a fringe part of the world. It used to be, and you guys remember this time, and again, just stating facts. I'm not making an opinion here or a statement, and I'm not asking us to return to the good old days because there's no such thing, all right? What I'm telling you is fact, is it was years ago the decisions by schools and municipalities and leaderships and organizations 30, 40 years ago considered the church course those days are gone right for a long time the church worked as a centerpiece of the lives of families and the decisions of families but now that is a fringe idea and I don't have to go into examples of how you see that all around us we have moved from a center place even in the Christian family to the decisions that center on Christ have been moved to the fringe and third The shift in our culture has moved from Christianity being respective to what I would say is now ineffective. Tell someone you're a Christian now, especially if they're from a world and they grew up in church, and you're not just strange, you're weird. Tell somebody you're a follower of Jesus and you get the response I got a couple weeks ago. We are now equated not with just kind of some people uh, that follow Jesus. We are now equated with fringe groups and political groups, and too often those things fall in line more with our politics than they do with Jesus. And so we have moved from being respected to ineffective. Now all these shifts and more is why we are going to explore for the next several weeks a series called Intersection. Intersection is going to be about our call and our mission to live into the reality of our world If you have a faith in Jesus, 
If you today, and I believe probably all of you have a faith in Jesus, that faith does not stand alone. It is not private, nor is it compartmentalized. To have a faith is to display Jesus to the world. It's to be a goose or a duck in the herd. It's to be different. As we've always said, to be in the world but not of the world, but really that it doesn't encompass it. It's to be of the world, or not of the world, but in the world to shine a light of Jesus to the world. It has a mission to it. And we're going to call that mission the intersection. The place where faith meets life, where faith meets school, where faith meets what we do with our bodies, where faith meets sexuality, where faith meets our fears, where faith meets life. So grab a hand to somebody next to you. I'm gonna pray this morning. We're gonna continue to pray for other churches in town, and the reason we do that is that we're asking for God's will to be done in those places as we do around this community. So I'm gonna pray this morning for our friends at the river, and then we're gonna also pray that our town will be awakened to the glories of God. Let's pray. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we see you today. May you speak today through scripture, through the book of Daniel. And God, may we be inspired to be people who live on mission. We're not gonna throw stones at culture. We're not here to get angry at culture. We're not here to say, well, it used to be better. We're here, God, to be Christians for such a time as this and to live the light of Jesus and to shine that light wherever we can. So we pray for inspiration, God. We pray for change. We pray for one person today to say, you know what? I can do something different. I can make a difference. God, we pray for your will and your love to be seen today with our friends over at the River Church. God, may you be glorified. And Father, may you be glorified in this town. May, may Canadian and Perryton and Wheeler and Miami and Pampa and our surrounding area and Hooker, Oklahoma, where we have some people watch every week. May May your will be done there too. And may people open their eyes to you. You are the best thing in this world, and there is no other. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so grab those Bibles. Let's go to Daniel chapter 6. If you got one of our uh, Bibles from back here on the row, you can grab one if you need one. That's page 609. That's in your Old Testament. Ezekiel, Daniel. And I want to give you just a quick background before we get into the text. We're going to be in Daniel 6. And Daniel is a book that takes place in exile, away from home. That's what that word means. Particularly, it takes place in Babylon. And Babylon is far from home. Babylon is the ancient idea of everything that is different and apart from the way of God. Daniel finds himself in Babylon where there is no temple, where his neighbors are not Jewish, where his neighbors instead are pagan. And they serve Babylonian gods and they serve an empire, particularly Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and Cyrus, the kings. This story that we're going to look at today also takes place about 60 years after the happenings of Daniel chapter 1. 
By this time, Daniel is an old man. He has survived Babylonian Empire. And by the time you get to, uh, to Daniel chapter 6, we have entered into what's called the, the phase of the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius is the ruler of that empire. And Darius has the largest empire known to man up to this point in history. His realm goes all the way south into Egypt, north into what would be modern Asia and stretches all the way to the east into modern Pakistan. He has a monster, monster empire. And in that empire, in order to maintain control, Darius has come up with something new in the history of the world. The vassal governor, or in your text today, it's going to be called the satrap. And the satrap, Daniel, is one of them. He is highly esteemed and highly distinguished. And he's so distinguished among these satraps that Darius wants to make him the satrap of all satraps. So we pick it up in verse 3 with that context in mind. Now, Daniel, so distinguished, told you, distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This may sound familiar to you. It should. It sounds like Joseph, what, what the Pharaoh did with Joseph. Daniel, in chapter 6, verse 3, just like he is in chapter 1, is showing himself by his dedication to God to be far and above the other leaders. He's the best of the best. He's up for promotion. He's up to be the satrap among the satrap, which is a hint that trouble is coming because nothing has changed in politics, people, right? Politics will always promise you something and deliver you nothing, right? Politics will always offer you something of a life and it will give you nothing. It's all about power. That's what's coming. Verse 4 through 16, hang with me here for a second. At this, what's this? This promotion for Daniel, the other administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs but they were unable to do so. So they tried to run a smear campaign. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. A little bit of flattery. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce this decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days, except for you, Lord Majesty, shall be thrown in the lion's den. So this is a play on his pride. Let's have 30 days of adulation and prayer to you, O emperor. They keep going. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Sorry, I think I missed something there. Okay. Now, when Daniel learned, where am I? 10, I'm in 10, but where am I at up here? 
No, no, we'll pick it up. All right, all right, 10. Then these men went as a group, okay, and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. They said, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown in the lion's den? Here we are. It's on the screen now. The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So now they've got him. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So you guys are familiar with this story. But it's because of the jealousy and petty quest for power that an 80-year-old man who's just doing his job and being faithful to his God is sentenced to death. They throw him in to the lion's den. They throw him in. They put a stone over the mouth of the cave and they close the cave's mouth. The king seals it with the cave, or seals it with his seal. And then the king cannot sleep all night. Then we pick it back up in verse 21. In the morning, he rushes and he yells out to Daniel. And he says, Daniel, and Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. Now, this is a cool little play on words in the Hebrew. The king who can write laws and take lives and shut caves can't control the mouth of a lion. Did you notice the king and his officials shut the mouth of the cave, leaving Daniel to his death? But the Lord is the one who can shut the mouths of lions and seal the mouths of lions. And it's an incredible story. It's an incredible story of rescue, but this is not the apex of the story. The fact that Daniel survived is not the point of the story. The point of the story is actually comes later. The point of the story is with Daniel's faithfulness, when he lets his faith intersect with culture, influence and change happens. We pick it up at the end of the story. Look what King Darius responds. Verse 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations in response to what's just happened and the peoples of every language in all the earth. Remember how big his empire is. Large section. And he writes this letter. And the letter says this, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree, not a decree that somebody should die, but a decree, not that somebody should pray to him. Look at this switch. A decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And there it is. He calls on the people to come to know this living God. He is the living God 
and he endures forever. He goes on to say, his kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. What an incredible letter. God and his goodness is on display. See, the message, the apex of the book of Daniel is that in a foreign land and as being a stranger in exile in a strange world, God still shows up. God, even when things seem like you can't catch a break or that the culture is going further and further away from God, Daniel is a message that says God meets you at the intersection. He doesn't fit into a Jerusalem box. He doesn't fit into a church box. He doesn't fit into an American box. He is a God who is everywhere. He's not waiting for Daniel back in Jerusalem for him to get home and rebuild the temple. He's there in Babel. And now because of the witness of an 80-year-old man, the apex is reached and the king sends out a call to worship. A king who is a pagan king, sends out a call and says, may all people in my kingdom recognize and know Yahweh, this king over all the universe. So for us today, this is a message, is it not? We often wring our hands because we're losing the center place instead of realizing that where God has us right now may be exactly where he needs us. And when we start to try to capture something that is gone, we lose the mission for what is now. And so we have got to learn from Daniel because the church is not in need of more people to come to a house of worship. The church is in need of more people who take their faith to the house of their office and the houses of schools and the houses of their actual homes. And they live out their faith at the intersection. And so what Daniel does this morning very quickly is he gives us three ways to live this out. And this is going to lead us in the weeks to come. Number one, what Daniel does is he lives at the intersection of faith and culture because he has a depth of character. Man, he's got character. Not because he is a character. He actually has character. Look at this. Back up in verse 4. Oh. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to, find, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct. They tried to look for something. Maybe he was cooking the book somewhere. Maybe he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing, but they were unable to find something. And then it goes on to say they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy. And I love this description. He was neither corrupt nor negligent. It's a way of scripture telling us he's covering all the bases. You may have people in your life who aren't corrupt, they're morally good people, but they might be a little negligent, right? They're, they're not good at follow through. They may start something, but they're, they're negligent because they, they don't finish, right? Or you may have somebody who's completely always type A and has every I dotted and T crossed and they've, they've got everything right, but they are slimy right? <laughs> they are. They have the Excel sheet at every meeting, but you don't know if they're not going to stab you in the back to get their way. Daniel is neither of those. He has a depth of character. And I want to talk about that because character, church family, is your destiny, right? 
Your habits make up your character. Your character will be what people talk about at your funeral. And a lot of people lie at funerals. May we be the kind of people where our destiny lines up with the character of Jesus and the character that Daniel shows here. Because all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, it's a little bit scary to think about our character being destiny because if your character is your destiny, it is going to catch up to you someday. And for many of us and probably all of us on some level, there is a gap between our private life and our public life. There's a gap between our home life and our church life. There's a gap between what we say here and what we say over here. There's a gap between who you are this morning and who you will be Monday morning, teens. Right? For all of us, there's a gap. And what Daniel teaches us is if you want to have a faith that meets the world at the intersection, then start to close the gap. Work on closing that gap. That takes vulnerability. It takes honesty. We've got to be a people who learn to say who I am is not perfect, but who I am is in progress with Jesus Christ, who growing and strengthening. And the longer I follow Jesus, the closer those gaps get, the more they close up. So close the gap, church. And number two, what Daniel shows us, and this one's important, there's not only a depth of character to Daniel, in Daniel, he understands that whatever position he has, he understands there's a difference between power and influence. So what's the difference? Well, power, guys, is something we all want. We all think it's gonna fix things, but power is always top down, right? Power is based on position. Power is the ability to coerce and force. It's to make somebody else do what I want them to do, whether they want to or not. It could be against their will, but I have power over them, so I'm able to force them. Take a brief glance at church history, and you will notice, and if you've never done any work or reading on church history, I encourage it. You will notice that the church has done very poorly anytime it's handed power, right? Our approval rating is this. <laughs> it's terrible. Have you heard of the Crusades? It's power. Even today, Christian nationalism, it's a grasp for power. And it's wrong. It's apostate. Daniel knows the difference. Power is always about getting people to do what I want. While influence is not top-down, influence is center out from who I am. It's based not on position, but on person. It's not based on me saying you have to be forced, but it's based on me displaying Jesus Christ. It's based on who I am and who you are in Christ, and it's the ability to befriend and convince through character instead of coercing through control. And the church, according to Jesus himself, is to be the place of influence, not power. His third 
and final temptation was one of power. And he didn't go, oh, yeah, 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 I'd like to be governor. He goes, no, get behind me. He also told his disciples in their quest for power, not so with you. Mark 10, 35, you are to be a servant because Jesus knows how to change the world. And we have got to learn again the difference between power and influence. And finally, what Daniel shows us, and I love this one, is he has a dedicated faithfulness. Daniel has a default, right? If you control-alt-delete Daniel, he goes back to this setting. And the setting is, no matter what's enacted, no matter what comes his way, he's going to keep following Jesus or following God. So this decree goes out, right? 30 days, you're going to pray only to King Darius. What a wild decree, right? 30 days, no other gods. Just pray to the king of the Medo-Persians. In verse 10, how's Daniel respond? Love this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, this is awesome. What a rock star this guy is. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Yeah, I love that, man. I love it. Daniel is like a, he's like a punk rocker, man. He's like, the man is telling me something to do. I'm going to rebel. Teens, let me, let me offer this way of rebellion. You want to rebel against your parents? Rebel like Daniel. Be like, mom and dad, you're not going to tell me not to get on my knees three times a day and pray to God, Right? That's some rebellion right there. That's the kind of rebellion we need to get behind because it's dedicated faithfulness. He's like, I'm going to open the windows. And what I love about this is, notice this, is he could have avoided it. You ever think about that? It was just 30 days. Big deal, right? 30 days. I can hide out for 30 days. I can skip praying. I can skip reading my Bible for 30 days. I can do whatever I want. It'll be past. Once it's passed, I'll go back to my habits that I had before. But Daniel shows us what it takes. It is dedicated faithfulness. Dedicated faithfulness to say, no matter what comes, my default setting is my heart belongs to the Lord. And in fact, I'll even open the windows and let people hear me pray. And you know they had to hear him pray because he got arrested for it, right? They weren't hanging out in the room with him. They could hear him praying out his window. What a beautiful expression of what faith is at the intersection. So that's probably enough just to let that sit with you. We need to be people of character. We need to understand that it's not about getting power over people to force them to be Christian. It's about us influencing them through the way of Jesus so they see what it looks like to be a Christian. And then it's dedicated faithfulness. I wanted to close with a great story. I thought I had one, and then I went through it again this week, and it was trash, so I just threw it out. But I'm going to close with this. And it's just a challenge. And it's a positive challenge. But I was taken aback as I thought more about Daniel this week by this is we have no other idea if Daniel had anybody else doing what he was doing. Yeah, we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but by this time, it's, it's six years later. We don't know what's happened to them, right? He had some friends that were faithful to, G, to, to God for a while. 
But what's incredible about the story of Daniel is we're sitting here in 2022 in, in the month of March talking about a guy who were still inspired by his faith. Is that not crazy? You're talking about something that happened 2,300 years ago. And we're still getting to talk about it. And so my challenge to close is this, is it just takes one. It just takes one person today who says it's time. It's time for me to go. It's time for me to stand up. It's time for me to have my faith not just meet me on a Sunday, but meet me on a Monday. It's time for me to make a difference. It just takes one. It takes one teenager at Canadian high school that says it's time to get Jesus in the high school. It only takes one. It only takes one middle schooler to say, you know what? I go to my middle schooler or my middle school with my friends. Let's get together and pray. It just takes one. God is already in your school. God is already in your office. You're not being asked to take him in any place where he is not. All you're being asked to do is to step up and be the one to say, let me show you who's already here. <laughs> His name is Jesus and he's really cool. You guys are imagining Jesus right here, right? That's all it takes. And that's all Daniel did. And it changed the world. So what would happen to us if we decide this morning, one of us, just one, to say today is the day. It's the day I join a river a long life of many other people who have said, I'm not satisfied with just a bump on a log faith. I want a faith that meets the world at the intersection. I still believe, and I hope you do too, that Jesus Christ is the best thing going in the world. That he is the hope for the world and there is no other. And I hope that we can display that to this world. If you need anything today, if you want to pray about that today, we're here for you. Uh, we have enjoyed being with us this morning. Let's stand together and sing.